morning. Good morning. My name is Andy, and I'm one of the college students. If you're new here, so glad you're here. And uh, Dan Marshall is our senior pastor. He'll be back next week. Y'all come on back. Um, I and my wife, Kristen, have four sons, and we just decided all we can make is boys. And people have asked us, why don't you try again to get that girl? And we say, you kidding me? We have twin boys. I'm not, <laughs> not doing that. But uh, my heart goes out to young girls and young women, and anytime Kristen and I get a chance to be around young women, we have this message. One thing that we want to burn into their brains and hearts is don't settle, because they are, it's kind of, this is why my heart goes out to them, because they look around when they're ready to date, and they don't see a lot of men who remind them of Jesus, they see a lot of boys, and I just say, don't, don't get don't get mad at them. Just don't date them. They're a work in progress. They just have to grow up and become men who are fully surrendered and in love with and transformed by Jesus. And uh, and men, don't get mad either. Just prove me wrong. Just go ahead and surrender to Jesus and give your life fully to him and be completely transformed by him. So, uh, Now, the reason I tell you all that is because we need to have the same message burn on our hearts and minds when we think about the things that we ask for from God we need to stop settling I want you to think about the thing that you're asking God for right now and and maybe there's not something you're actively asking him for regularly but if you were to think right now what do I wish God would give me what there's some deep longing of your heart And my guess is whatever that thing is that you want to ask him for, it's probably way too small. And we settle for asking him for something that's so much smaller than what he's really dying and has already died to give us. And we need to not settle. Why do we do this? We've got some longing and we ask God to give us trinkets to throw into the void that will never scratch that itch that only Jesus can why do we settle the answer for us is going to be in Psalm 78 Psalm 78 And the title here, it says, it's a maskil of Asaph. And you're, we're already confused because we don't know what a maskil is. And it is probably means either a wise or skillful poem or song. And it could be because it is a, it is written and it includes lots of wisdom and it is skillfully written. It might be a song written for worship with a very elaborate sort of call and response format that requires a lot of skill to conduct. Any way you look at it, what it means is there's a lot of good stuff in here. And it's written by Asaph, and he starts out by saying, Listen up, 
He says in verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. He's saying, I want you to listen because I'm about to tell you the history of Israel with these ups and downs and how we see God rescue them and be patient with them over and over again and rescue them with signs and wonders over and over again so we can be in awe of God and how he saves with mighty works. So he wants to tell this story to the next generation. Why? Look at verse 4. He says, We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Why do we want to tell them that? Verse 7, so that, so this is answering the question, why do we tell the next generation? It's four things, so that they would set their hope in God, or you could say trust or believe in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. So this is why Asaph is saying we need I'm going to tell you the history of God's saving power and, the, and why we need to keep telling the next generation is essentially so that they won't forget the awesome saving power of God and that that will help them to believe and believe enough to ask God for big things. And notice what he does here. We've got kind of two categories of what he does want them to do is to remember and keep his commandments and to hope or to trust or believe. And look at what already we see in the opposite category of believe is to be stubborn and rebellious. He's saying it's important for us to look back at the saving power and remember the saving power of God. So that we will see, man, if he was that awesome back then, we can believe now and not rebel. And I was going to wait a little bit later to say this, but I'm just going to tell you. Do you see what he's, he's equating rebellion with unbelief? I want them to remember so that they will trust, not rebel and not trust. I want them to believe. And now he goes into a little mini survey of the saving power of God. Look in verse 12. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt. Remember, they were slaves for 400 years. And then what happened? Verse 13. He divided the sea. And let them pass through it and made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. He's telling them these awesome things that God did in hopes that they will believe in God to continue to save them with mighty works. He's expecting them to remember and believe. And we might expect, as we're just listening to this story, or maybe hope 
that this first generation who witnessed all these things, maybe they will believe. Maybe they will hope that if God did these things, that he'll continue. And look at verse 17. Yet. That's a contrast word. So that means they're not going to do what we would hope they would do, which is to believe that he will continue. Yet they sin still more against him, rebelling. There again is our word, rebelling, as the opposite of belief. Rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding food that they craved. So there's some sort of connection between rebelling against God and testing God. And there's a connection to craving. Things that they crave and they're testing God in this. And and so they're not believing, they're rebelling. And he'll spell this out a little bit more. Look at verse 19. They spoke against God saying... Can God spread a table in the wilderness? And just think about, think about how ridiculous this question is. What, what has just happened? He has just rescued them with his mighty hand and outstretched arm with signs and wonders. And they're free. And they're in the desert and their stomachs touch the ground. They go, can he feed us? Oh no. And they're freaked out about, can he set a table in the wilderness? It's absurd. It's it's knowing, oh, he's not even here, knowing that Dean Imler regularly does, runs MERS, which includes and is not limited to 100 pull-ups. And to catch him on a Monday when I know he's well-rested and say, I'll bet you $100 that you can't do five pull-ups. That's absurd because he's done so much more on a regular basis. And here they are, a little hungry, and saying, I don't know if he can feed us out here when he's done so much more on a regular basis. It's absurd. The refusal to believe. They did it and we do it. We set way too low a bar for God. The things that we get anxious about and worried about. And think, I don't know if God can give me this thing. I don't know if God can do this thing in my life or in my own heart. I don't know if he can do it. We set the bar so low. Can he he make me a plate out here? So small. So sad. We settle. And look, they continue, the continued expression of their unbelief here in verse 20. This is still the the Israelites talking. They said, can he spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread to provide meat for the people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. Now notice he was full of wrath. But he didn't pour out his full wrath on them. He gave them little doses, like whenever you've got a pot with hot liquid on the stove and every once in a while and some comes out and you hear it sizzle up. Like he, he doles out small doses of his wrath, as you'll see and as you read. But his full wrath is only poured out on one to come. On his own son. 
But here, their unbelief stirs up his full wrath. But he keeps it in. Except for small doses. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger arose against Israel. And here specifically, it answers the question, why was he angry? Verse 22, because they did not believe. This is what stirs up the holy, righteous anger of God. When his people, whom he has rescued, don't believe. This is what he wants out of you right now. Whatever difficult situation you're in, believe. They didn't. And it kindled his anger. They did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. They were meant to look at his saving power demonstrated over and over again in the past and trust that he will continue to be who he is. Believe that he will still say with a mighty hand and outstretched. And look at again how the Bible defines this word rebellion. Because we've seen it a couple of times in our passage already. Look on the screen at Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 23. When the Lord sent you, remember this is the spies who went in to check out the promised land. And they came back and said, hey, the land is awesome. The land God promised to give us is awesome, but there's giants there. So I don't know if God can handle giants. Uh, so they didn't believe. Look in verse 23. When the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe. This is the biblical definition of rebellion, a refusal to believe. That's what caused the wrath in verse 22 of Psalm 78. And what I hope you see, unbelief is not passive or just baseline or, or optional. Like, I'm just going about my normal life, and I know God's promising victory and, and things that he wants to do, but it's kind of my choice. If I want to take part in those good things, I can choose to believe, but if I choose not to believe, that's just me choosing not to take part. As if God says, you can choose it if you want or not, it's your choice. When in fact, a choice to not believe not passive or optional, it's active rebellion. 
He's commanded us to believe. And when we look at what he's done and choose not to believe that he'll be, he'll continue to be faithful, we are in active rebellion. And it stirs his wrath and anger. And we should define biblically what test means because they have rebelled over and over again and they've tested God over and over again. You can look up here at Exodus 17, verse 1. I'm going to read a couple of verses before you, we get to the ones on the screen. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. And this is just after they've come out of the out of slavery in Egypt by signs and wonders. He's, they're just fresh out of this miraculous salvation and deliverance. According to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled. And the Lord said to them in verse 6, Behold, I, to, to Moses he says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Masa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord. So what does testing mean? It says right here, by. So this is how they tested. This is the definition of what it means to test. By saying, is the Lord among us or not? So when they're testing the Lord, underneath is this question, is he with us? The one who rescued me from slavery. Is he still with me? The one who was able to save me, is he able to still provide for me? And this, this underlying assumption of, I don't know if I can actually believe, I, I can believe on something that I can look back and know I, I'm physic, I was physically there, now I'm physically here. I, I can believe that. But to continue to believe that this invisible God is still with me. Is he with me? Or is he not? That's, that's putting God to the test. Testing him. On the surface, this question comes out like, can the one who saved us continue to provide this thing that I'm craving? Or maybe can he provide something better than what I'm craving? And when we look at the past and then in the present, we don't believe. And we're saying, man, I, I don't know. I don't know if he's with me. And if, I don't know if he is going to take care of me because I don't know that he's with me. We're testing God. This is how the Israelites put him to the test. And this word crave that we saw, where does this word craving come from? Remember, if we were in, if you're still looking at Psalm 78, it's there in verse 18. They tested God in their heart, demanding the food that they craved. What kind of food are we talking about? Well, look at the screen at Exodus chapter 16, verse 1. 
they set out from Elim, and this again is right after they were rescued from slavery. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, so they just came out of slavery in Egypt with signs and wonders, and now, verse 2, which is there, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that, or, or I wish that, we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. How dare you rescue us from slavery? And they're craving pots of meat. Craving pots of meat. And so, I wanted to show you a, this is potted meat, so, uh, and I love the little caption, it says, food product, not, not actually food, or not actually meat, it's food product, but, uh, the ingredients actually says mechanically separated chicken and something and something, and the, there's a, the uh, other jar that I had, I almost brought up a jar pot of meat. Um, and it has a picture of them spreading it on bread. And it's just like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's a food product, apparently. Um, but, now, granted, the pots of meat that they were longing for did not look like this. But it might as well have... What, I, what I'm saying is you take whatever it is that you're remembering and craving and and seeing through sort of a romanticized revision of history, however you're seeing it compared to the Lord who saves you, everything looks like that. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? It doesn't matter what you're craving and thinking, this is the thing that's going to make me happy. This is the thing that's going to make me secure. If my husband would just, my wife would, my kids would just, whatever, that would be the thing that would make me so happy. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. Compared to the Lord, it's sad and small and pales in comparison. It pales in comparison to what the Lord, who has already saved us, what the Lord provides. Whatever He provides is infinitely better and more satisfying than that pot of meat from our past that we're craving. And you know, <laughs> you know why it's so satisfying? Partly yes, because it comes from Him, but also, do you know what He gives you? Himself. He gives you Himself. You remember what He says to Abram? 
I am your very great reward. To which he sadly answers, okay, cool, but what will you give me? <laughs> uh, and aren't we like that? We're stuck on the pots of meat, the things, that, the familiar, physical, tangible things that we have memories of, that we think, I remember a time when things were, I knew what to expect. And that, that's part of what's going on here. Freedom is scary. When you're in bondage, in slavery, there is sort of a twisted sense of comfort that comes from knowing what to expect. And to be absolutely free, with no guardrails, following Jesus into the great unknown with him can be kind of terrifying. It's like going ice skating and letting go of the rail and just going, I could fall flat any millisecond and just going with it, knowing that you can trust. <laughs> and there's a, there's something there's something uh, safe and appealing about going back to what we knew. And of course we have selective amnesia when it comes to remembering our past bondage. As we gaze into the past. Into our slavery that the Lord has delivered us from. And so they crave pots of meat as we crave, you name it. Look at, on the screen, Numbers chapter 11. Another description of their craving. Verse 4 says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. They'd rather have pots of meat and leeks. That's what we're locked in on, pots of meat and leeks. And some of it comes from the fact that we've had a taste of something at some point that just barely scratched that itch. That at some point we had somebody respect us and it puffed up our pride a little bit and we thought, man, if I could just have this kind of respect in my home 24-7, then I'd finally be happy. And it's a lie. Or I felt really and truly desire this one time from another human. And if I could just have that 24-7, I'd finally be happy. And it's a lie. Pots of meat and leeks. We're believing in things to satisfy us that never could. And notice what they did in verse 6 right there. Look at how they're talking about manna. They, 
They have disdain for manna. Yes, the miraculous provision from God, bread raining from heaven. Honey wafers. This is what they're saying. Oh, it's manna. How how did they get there? It's because they were looking at the manna too long. This is what happens. When we look at the gift for too long, with our eyes off of the giver, what do we do? We start to realize this isn't going to satisfy me. And we start to realize this gift, every good gift that comes from God, you take any good gift that comes from God and you take your eyes off of God and just stare at the gift, it's only a matter of time before you realize this doesn't satisfy because it was never meant to. It was meant to fuel your worship of the one who gave it. And we realize this won't satisfy me, so then the fear comes in. What if there's a time in the future when I'm not satisfied, or maybe I need something else, and I won't be satisfied in that need either? Looking at taking your eyes off of the giver, onto the gift for too long, leads to fear, discontentment, and an illogical disdain for an amazing gift that God gave. And you'll think, it'll never be enough. And you're right. It won't. So look what the Israelites did. Instead of looking at his saving power in the past, and the gifts that he's given, and remembering how awesome he is, and instead of looking at him who saved him and saved them and provides for them, and believing, instead of looking at all that and believing him, they looked backward and they craved for pots of meat. How does God feel about that? Well, remember, look at chapter 78, Psalm 78, verse 21. This is how he felt about their choice to not believe. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. Fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. And now, how does God respond to them? Verse 23 says, yet. Y'all see that that's good news? When you have, look at, look at how their actions have stirred God's anger. You're expecting him to pour out his anger. But when you see a contrast where you're like, maybe there's hope. And it says, yet. And look, by the way, he can respond in two ways. He can respond in grace or judgment. And he actually does both. Look at what it says in 23. Yet he commanded the skies above, and he opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them 
manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. Do you see this grace? That they're complaining about pots of meat that they had when they were in slavery. And God, instead of just ending them, he says, okay, I'll rain down bread from heaven. It's incredible. The grace. He's so patient with our unbelief. And we don't deserve it. But sometimes God gives you what you crave, what you're begging him for, in judgment. Because look at what it says in verse 26. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Beware of begging the Lord for what you're craving. When you sense that he said no the first time. Because if you keep asking, he might give it to you. And what the Lord said to them with the quail, he said, Oh, you want me? Oh, I'll give you me. It was coming out your nostrils. He says that. And it was a judgment to them. And his anger spilled over. And many of them died. And notice, look in verse 29. It says, they were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. Notice what happened there. When God gave them what they were craving, the pots of meat, the, 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 the thing that won't satisfy them, that they're craving and they're, they're demanding of God and begging for from God. When God gave them that thing, they were filled, but not satisfied. Because only one can satisfy. And they didn't want him. They wanted his stuff. Anything that the Lord provides is infinitely better than anything we're craving. And mainly because what he provides is himself. So, when he gave them the meat that they demanded, that they were craving, and it was a judgment to them, did they learn from that? Look at verse 32. In spite of all this, 
they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. There's that tragic phrase again. They did not believe. This is where they went wrong over and over and over again, and where we go wrong over and over and over again. We look at how he's saved in the past, and we refuse to believe that he's still saved. And part of what was going on with them, can he make us a table in the wilderness? Do you see what they looked around? That's what got them into trouble. They had data all around them that says, God can't provide for me here. But there's something way more trustworthy than the physical data around us. It's his word. Him. They did not believe. Verse 33. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they... Now this is good news. Look at verse 34. When he killed them, they sought him. The ones that were still standing, they repented and they sought God earnestly. This is good news. Verse 35. They remembered. This is what we want. They remembered that God was their rock. The Most High God, their Redeemer. But, no, no, not a contrast word, please. But it says, but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. They're so fickle. Just like me. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. So close, man. They're doing so good. So maybe now what I would expect is God says, all right, I'm done with you suckers. Forget it. Now look at verse 38. Yet, he being compassionate. This is your God. When you run faithful and when you refuse to believe over and over again. This is your God. He being compassionate. Atoned for their iniquity. And did not destroy them. He restrained his anger. Often. <laughs> he restrained his anger often. And did not stir up all of his wrath. Again, he stirred up some of it, but he saved all of it for his own son. Look at verse 40. How often they rebelled. Remember, that's unbelief. They rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Remember, testing is saying, is he really among us? He saved us, but can he provide? Is he really here? Is he really better than the pots of meat? They're testing him over and over again by craving and demanding. Verse 42, they did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zon. And now he launches into another survey of just how the Lord saved them from Egypt. And I want to read this, and I want you... We get to practice right now. We get to practice. This is what we should be doing every day of our life, reading the Word and seeing how He saves over and over and over again. And let it fuel our faith for the pickle that you're in right now. 
What are you having str- a struggle believing him for right now? What are you what are you thinking that's just too far fetched? That the Lord would do that in my family, in my heart, that you just don't know that you can believe? Let this fuel your faith. Listen to how he says, verse 44. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. This is for the Egyptians who have oppressed God's people for 400 years. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the thunderbolts. This is so unfair if you're a bad guy. He is just doing whatever he wants and he's not following any rules of nature or anything. This is the God who fights for you. Verse 49, he let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress. A company of destroying angels, he made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of hand. And now that they're out of slavery, look in verse 52. He's not done with them. He didn't just set them free to let them be on their own. He led them. He led out his people like sheep, guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy land. He brought them safely into the land. To the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. And isn't this heartbreaking? 56. Yet, that's a contrast. They tested and they rebelled against the Most High God and they did not keep His testimonies. They turned away. They turned away to idolatry. And so in 59, when God heard, he was full of wrath. And again, he vented out small doses of his wrath on them until at the end of Psalm 78. What are we going to see? Are we going to see God said, I've had enough? <laughs> I'm done with you. Look at verse 68. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. I hope you're seeing Jesus. God's response to their repeated unfaithfulness was to give them a good shepherd from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. How much more true is that for us? That in our our repeated unfaithfulness, he has sent a good shepherd. And this good shepherd took the full wrath 
of a holy God on himself. And it destroyed him. And God, by his mighty hand and outstretched arm, rose Jesus from the dead. And Jesus, with all of his resurrection power, is among us. <laughs> and living in you. And in me. What lesser pleasures from your past, what pots of meat and leeks still demand your gaze from time to time? What current inconveniences make you anxious? In what way are you saying, can he set a table for me here? Can he provide for me in this tough spot? For Asaph, the, sim the solution is simple. We look back and remember his saving power. And we believe. And so for us, how do we do that? Well, I hope you read your Bible. I hope you read it every day. I hope you read it a lot. Because you're, if you don't think he saves, you're not reading. And see him save over and over again. See him faithfully save and unfaithful people over and over again. And where we are in history, we're in a much better spot than Asaph was. Who Asaph looked back to the, to the great shepherd, David. Here we are. We get to look back and remember. And, and we get to hear Asaph saying, Man, I want to tell the next generation the next generation so they look back and that they won't forget all the awesome ways that God saved. All the signs and wonders. And what better sign and wonder is there than Jesus on the cross, buried and raised, an empty tomb proclaiming that he still saves. We get to look back on the saving work and resurrection of the living Christ who is among us and in us. Why would there be anything that we wouldn't believe? It's absurd that we can look at the cross and the empty tomb and think that there's anything that we go, I don't know if he can do that. Uh, my brother-in-law is here. He's also a pastor. He reminded me, this is a classic from greater to lesser argument. If he can do the cross and the resurrection, of course he can do the thing that you're stressing out over right now. Can God spread a table? What is the sad small thing that you're asking him for? 
Are you worried about your finances? Are you worried about what's going on in the heart of your child right now? Are you, or the heart of your spouse? And are you begging anxiously that God will change their heart? You're settling. Ask bigger. Lord, I believe you can change me. I believe in the saving power coming through me to dispel all the lies that I'm wrestling with and to be a fountainhead of the saving power of Christ to everyone around me, in my home and everyone around me. We need to stop settling. He is able. Why do we settle? Why do we test him? Why do we rebel? Because we don't believe. So let's repent. Y'all pray with me. Lord Jesus. Will you convict us of the sad, small miracles that we're asking for. For the things that we're not believing, we need your help. We know, we confess this truth, that there is no other name by which man can be saved. There is no one higher, more exalted than you, Jesus. There is none stronger. And you are among us. We confess that truth. We believe you are among us. We believe you are in us. We believe that you are able and ready and willing to save. Grant us hearts of repentance to stop our unbelief. Turn to you. Confess truth. Right in our brokenness and in our fear and in our pain and not wait for any of those things to change first, but just to turn, just say, Lord, I'm, I'm putting all my chips on you. I'm just going to believe. Help us, please, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.